Welcome to Writer Writer Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com and visit the Writer Writer Pants on Fire blog at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire will begin featuring interviews with agents and editors in the month of June. To access this exclusive content and have the chance to pose your own questions to guest agents and editors, support the podcast through Patreon. Visit www.patreon.com forward slash Mindy McGinnis to learn more or check out the link in the episode credits. Today's guest is Mindy Arnett, author of the Nightmare Affair series, the sci-fi titles Avalon and Polaris, as well as the upcoming fantasy Onyx and Ivory. Mindy joined me today to talk about rejection letters, both physical and by email, and realigning expectation with reality once you become published. Nothing But Sky by Amy Trueblood. 18-year-old wing walker Grace will do anything to get to the 1922 World Aviation Expo, even if it means risking her life every day. A thrilling YA historical publisher's weekly calls a post-World War I epoch with visceral period detail. Available in stores now. Most of my audience are aspiring writers in the query trenches. So I want to ask you about your agent hunt and how you found your agent. First of all, who is your agent? I'm with Susie Townsend from New Leaf Literary Media, which, according to my opinion, is the very best agency in the whole world. <laughs> I know so many writer friends that have not had a lot of success with their first agent. It's kind of like being in a relationship with the wrong boyfriend, and they've had to break up and get new ones. And I've just been lucky. Susie has been right for me from the very beginning. I'm very blessed in that regard. I ended up writing four complete novels to universal rejections. I wrote my first novel while I was actually getting my master's degree uh, in English because I'm a crazy person that thought that would be a good idea to write a novel and get a master's at the same time. But I did it, and it was terrible. I thought it was great, though. And I sent it out, not, not to too many places. At this time, you couldn't just email. You had to actually ship the whole book. That's how old I am. And we were right on the threshold of moving over into the digital submission stage. So I didn't send that a whole lot. And I got general rejections across the board. And then I wrote the second book and did the same thing. It was bad. Sent it out. And I kept going. And by the time I had the fourth book, I was starting to get encouraging rejections. They'd ask for the first five pages and they'd ask for the next 50. I'd send them off and they'd read the 50. And like, this is good, but not quite there yet. Keep working on it. Come back. Those kinds of rejections which were great, right? I mean, it's very encouraging, but at the same time, just utterly devastating. It's like jumping over something really large and falling instead of landing on your feet. Like the higher the jump gets, the harder that fall is, even though, you know, it's a good thing. So finally I sat down to write the fifth book and I I finally said to myself, I've got some game. I had sold some short stories. I knew that I could do this, but it just wasn't working. And so I looked at my writing process and I said, you know, I need to change this up. I need to do something different. And that's what I did. And I ended up writing The Nightmare Fair, which became my first book. Um, I wrote that book differently from the first four. I edited it. I sent it out. I sent them out batches of like 10 at a time. And she was in that first 10 and she requested the full. And I think she had it about two weeks. And then I was on the phone with her with an offer. I probably spent seven or eight years. I'd have to do the math, but somewhere around there, writing those first four books before finally 
selling the nightmare for signing, finding my agent and selling it. And the book sold really fast too, once we had signed with the agent. But you know, I spent so many years before then trying and failing. I have stacks of rejection letters because again, back then they mailed rejection letters instead of emailing them. I'm one of those few writers that still have actual stacks of paper with rejections on them. I uh, do so too. That was pretty cool. It changed so quickly. Just in that time, now you don't do that anymore. It's all digital, which is good for the planet. So I'm not going to complain. But I do feel like writers have missed out a little bit on not having the pleasure of looking back at their their printed papers with rejection all over the top of it. So, Yeah, quicker rejections. That's what, how I felt about emails. I just got my rejections more quickly. The same day. <laughs> You're like, oh, wow, that was fast. Oh, sometimes an hour like, later. Yeah. Or even right. minutes. I would be sending out queries. I would be sending out batches and I'd send out one batch and then I'd be making a list of who I had sent to and well, that was okay. Rejected. Fill that in. Right. That was super fast. <laughs> right. And those are the best. Or then you get one that was like 12 months later, you know, when you've been querying as long as I had, it would be 12 months later and I would get a rejection. I'm like, wow, that was <laughs> kind of pointless. Like why even bother responding 12 months later? But I got a few rejections come in after I'd already signed with my agent. Yeah, I did too, actually. You want to reply and go, ha, ha, ha. Don't you <laughs> you do. You want to be like, you can't hurt me anymore. <laughs> right. Which, of course, you don't because we're professionals. But in your little heart, you're going, yes, well, screw your rejection. Right. <laughs> Someone else likes me just fine. I remember the time of physical queries and sending self-addressed stamp envelopes. And when you would get an envelope back with your own handwriting on it, my heart would just sink because most of the time it would be a rejection. That half second of hope and then you would open it up and they would have little squares, like little rejection slips. They were cut out on sheets and, you know, some poor intern was probably using the big block paper cutter and just, you know, cutting these all day. I would hold the envelope up to the light so I could see if it was actually a sheet of paper, if it was a square so that I could, <laughs> I could prep myself before I opened it. Right. And I always wanted to look to see if there was any handwritten notes on them. I had to say most of mine were actually from short stories because I, I spent a lot of time querying shorts first. I wanted to publish those before I even started novel writing. But mm -hmm. yeah, it was the same way. Like, you know, you knew right away because they would email if they were going to buy the story. They'd be like, screw this paper stuff. Let's just right. send this person an email. You right. Know? Yeah. It was an experience. I agree with you, though. I did enjoy, in some ways, having my physical. I have a box. I have a box full of rejections. And it is kind of fun to have those and to keep them and to look at them. I wasn't terribly organized about it. So some of them are still kind of hanging loose. I have a shelf. It's a built-in shelf. And I'll pull the doors open and go in there looking for something else and occasionally stumble across one. And I'm like, oh, where did you come from? And it's like, it's kind of this pleasant funny, nostalgic, still slightly painful reminder of where you've been. And in some ways that's a good thing. Even now, I'm sure you have writers talk about it. It's hard to continue to publish once you've been published. Yes, you, know, you continue to face rejections and bad reviews and all kinds of negative stuff. So sometimes it's nice to have a reminder of one that you've overcame. I do like that and I giggle about it. And so, <laughs> No, that's very true. Uh, you were speaking about short stories. I'm attempting, I've talked about this on the show before, I'm attempting now as a published novelist to get short stories accepted and I have yet to get a single one. So I am dealing with rejection. I've been doing this for like a year and a half, two years. I've been dealing with rejection all over again. 
in the short story arena. So relearning that process of getting rejected and being like, okay, it's all right. Log that. Keep going. <laughs> right. So, but that's all. I mean, you know, obviously it's a little less of a wound since I do write for a living, but it, it does keep you humble, I think. Yes. One of our other writer friends, so we talk about probably the entertainment industry in general, where you eat humble pie every day. Writing in particular, it's the only job where everyone talks about their salaries. Like, not only do they talk about it, but like it's published in big magazines like Entertainment Weekly. Mm-hmm. So and so sold for $1.2 million. And, you know, and this is your job. Mm-hmm. So it, it's strange. Those of us that work normal jobs or have in the past, they don't talk about salary. You get fired. And also, our performance reviews are public as well. Like, people can look up sales numbers. It's an odd business in that sense. Uh, it's very hard to be a professional and kind of look at it and go, wow, how do you stay sane when it's like this? I published just today, actually, I, the podcast is about how writers get paid. You make that statement, six-figure deal for a right. trilogy or whatever. And so I broke that down. That's actually not much money. Depending on which end of the six figures. Usually if it's a very big one, then, then you get specifics, like when it gets over $500,000. It plays into marketing, this idea that, wow, we paid all this money for it, so it must be good, you know, to kind of get people excited. Right. And it works. So good for those writers that that happens for. Mm-hmm. Um, people think you make more money than you do. So I had one of those announcements, six figures, and it was the first six figure. And they published that. And my boyfriend's mom is like, oh, my gosh, are you guys going to buy a boat and all this stuff? And I'm like, <laughs> no, our life yeah, is going yeah. to continue exactly in the same method that it has been. Right. Right. We might be able to pay off the credit card bills, maybe. Like, that's it. Right, right, right. You know how they do the ranking, like, good deal, mm-hmm. very good deal, whatever, and the way that those are cut down monetarily. They'll even include bonuses. I had one book deal where if I were to receive any kind of reward, I would get like $25,000 bonus. But they include that in the money, which you don't actually get unless you do it. It's not what it looks like. There's a lot more going on that you don't know about when you're just looking at it from the outside. When you see those big announcements, they break down differently in real life. It's not important for everyone to know. If you know a writer, if you're moving those circles, just be aware they might not be able to pick up the bill for lunch like every time. <laughs> well, I think it's important for aspiring writers too. I think for me personally, one of the hardest parts of this journey is realigning expectation with reality. With very few exceptions, unless you are truly the darling that's getting the the million dollar deals right out the door. Mm -hmm. If you're going to be serious about it and you want a long-term career, I think it's in your best interest to try and align expectation with reality ahead of time. And that was something that I was not able to do. And not that my expectations were crazy. I mean, they weren't like, oh, I'm going to be buying a mansion after this. But the real hard, true reality of it was still even harder than I had prepared myself for. So it's good to know that. And I tell aspiring writers that the most important thing is remember that publishing is not the end game. The story itself, that's what you have. No one can take it away from you. And that's where you need to rest your head on. Not the publishing deal that's always going to disappoint you in some way. And I mean, there's obviously huge successes that are wonderful, but they go away. And then there's other things that are harder. And the only thing that stays good and that stays the same and steady is the writing itself, Mm -hmm. the story itself. And I think the sooner any writer can accept that, the sooner they're going to be at peace with the business part of it. What's hard about this business is that, you know, it is a business, but it's also creative. Mm -hmm. We are making art and we want to feel like art should be free and 
joyful and it shouldn't come with all these tags and burdens. But the reality is, is that it does because it's not just art. It is also a business. Just from my own experience, that's the biggest thing I think writers that are aspiring need to put on their armor about Mm -hmm. as they're going into the trenches. That's certainly true. I'm still adjusting to, because even I, knowing very well how the money breaks down, I will look at my own announcement and be like, okay, then why am I still struggling? Why am I worried about money? Right. And that's why I still did work a day job. Mm -hmm. So, and I, you know, have made peace with that. And the nice thing about that is that my writing money does become the let's buy a boat type of money. It's hard and it's working two jobs. And the thing is, is that I work just as hard as any writer that doesn't have a day job. Just because I work full time that I'm doing writing part time. It's not. I have the same expectation is on me that's on anybody that's doing this business. That's where you have to be careful. That's that humble pie thing can create a lot of envy and bitterness and things that are just bad for you. Mm -hmm. It's just good to prepare yourself and make peace because it it will kill you if you let it. And I know lots of writers that are on anti-anxiety drugs and that deal with depression, lots of things. You're right about the work being the same, whether you work as an author full-time or whether you're working a full-time job outside of being a writer. I quit my job two years ago and it wasn't necessarily because I was so financially set that I could. There were a lot of different reasons. My job was actually changing because it was a library position and schools don't have funding for libraries. So they were eliminating the position and turning it into a classroom aid position. And I was only making aid pay. So it was something like 14000 a year. And for me, doing that work when it was doing something I loved was great. Doing it when it was something I was more than likely going to hate, that was not worth it. Right. Not for that price point. No, definitely <laughs> right. So, but right. you're right. I was doing the same amount of work with writing. I mean, I write just as much mm. then as I do now. I just have more time, but that doesn't mean that I get it done any quicker. You'd be amazed how much time you waste. I see it even, even in my own life with the job mm-hmm. that there's times that I waste. And you know, there's things that, that I think I would do if I, I didn't have the day job, like your podcast, which I think mm-hmm. is wonderful. There's no way I would ever no. have the time to do that. It wouldn't exist if I um, was working. It would not. Yeah. I love helping new writers, and I, I would love to do more of it. And I do envy that. I would love to have more time to be able to do the extra writing related mm-hmm. projects that I, I don't. I mean, just the marketing for my own book is about to kill me in terms of it. The, the time involved on top of everything. Yep, else. absolutely. Coming up, how being a mid-lister can be a benefit when it comes to genre jumping, how to tell when you're researching too much, and where to find Mindy online. Only Fallow can see lies. When word of her ability makes its way to the king, she's plucked from her idyllic family and brought to the castle at Bell's Keep. There, in the duplicitous, power-hungry court, Only will find that the truth is her greatest weapon and her greatest weakness. Be sure to check out the book that School Library Journal calls a well-developed and original fantasy that is a must-have for any middle-grade collection. Heartseeker by Melinda Beattie is in stores June 5th from Penguin Kids. You started your writing career with The Nightmare Affair, the first in a paranormal trilogy where the main character is literally a nightmare, a succubus that feeds on people's dreams. Then you switched to straight-up sci-fi with the duology of Avalon and Polaris, then are jumping over to high fantasy with your upcoming release of Onyx and Ivory, which I saw your hardcovers the other day. They're beautiful. (laughs) 
Thank you. They are. They're so big. (laughs) Are you like, I did that. (laughs) I just look at it and go, I hope people will still want to read it because it's long, right? right? Like, I think that's for some people, the appeal is a short book and hopefully there's more people that want to read a long book. I think with fantasy readers, there are. I think with fantasy readers, you you tapped into a different audience there. Do you think YA offers more freedom to writers to genre jump? And do you think that your readers follow you from series to series? Do you think you're picking up different readers with different genres? I do think that young adult is a little bit more open to genre changes. I have not at any point been told, no, Mindy, you shouldn't do that genre. But I think I need to caveat that a little bit. Part of that is because I'm a mid-lister. I feel like if I were one of those really big writers, I think that they probably have less ability to jump because of the expectations of so many readers. But in general, I say that young adult has a much greater flexibility and fluidity, I think, than adult. Now, then again, I don't publish adult, so I don't know that that's the case per se, but I do think that young adult readers tend to be less pigeonholed in their reading. They're more willing to pick up contemporary and then go to a sci-fi or then go to a fantasy. I think that we fall into our extreme likes and dislikes as we mm-hmm. get older. I know that is true for me. Like I, I'm very particular about what I read now. When I was younger, I was less particular about it. And I do think that's, that's that one of the advantages is that we are writing for teenagers and they're, they're figuring out who they are. It takes you a really long time to figure out who you are and you never quite do it. I don't think even as you become an adult, it's work. but you're spending a lot more time with less lines and less rigidity when you're a teenager. So I do think that the young adult author has that ability more easily to be able to switch. I do have plenty of readers that have followed from book to book. But I do think primarily I'm picking up new readers with each genre. And the thing about young adult, too, is that kids that were teenagers when my first book came out in 2013 are not teenagers mm-hmm. anymore. They have mm-hmm. moved on. That's a, one of the great things about it. And also one of the challenges is that, you know, you're not necessarily retaining the same readers because they have moved on. They've gotten mm-hmm. older. But at the same time, you have a fresh influx every year. They're going to new schools and they're getting older and they're trying new things. It's a mixed bag, but it's a good bag to be in. And I think you make a really good point that mid-listers have more freedom to jump around and experiment because we don't have to sell 100,000 copies of this book. We can sell 15 and be like, yes! (laughs) It's interesting if we talk about pros and cons and with extreme success comes a little bit of pigeonholing where they want you to follow through with another variation of whatever your extreme success was and you you lose some of that freedom yeah and i've heard from other writers that readers tend to follow series more than authors i as an adult tend to follow writers more than series you know if it's a writer i like and i've enjoyed their book i'll pick up their next one maybe that's an age thing as well but a lot of adults read young adult let's be serious now come on (laughs) i have just as many adult readers as i do actual i do too I actually, as an adult, am turned off of series. By the time the second one comes out, I have to, because I am an adult and I don't retain like I used to, I'm like, I don't want to reread. So I do drop off of my series. I'm more likely to follow authors. It has to be a really special series. But if it is, and if it's by a writer that I like. Sometimes I'll wait for, I'll read the first Um, one and I'll love it. And then I'll just wait until... The whole series is out and it's done, which can be like four or five years later. And then I just read the whole thing, start the first one and just read it all. We should caveat that and say, readers, if yeah, you're don't do that don't to do us that. because it's so bad. <laughs> At least buy the book, even if you're not going to read it for another three years, because that's how series yeah. get canceled. 
Because, yes, if your first one sells like hotcakes and then your second one drops off a ton, then they might not even print your third one. Hard business. <laughs> Let's just put it that it way. Hard. It's hard. I know from doing many, many, many panels with you that your pet peeve in books <laughs> is getting horses wrong. So mine is books and movies that get farms wrong. I could go on and on. So as an accomplished equestrian, it's something that you are sure to notice when writers get horses wrong. When you're doing research on something else, what kind of research do you find yourself doing to avoid making similar mistakes? And is there such a thing as too much research? There is definitely such a thing as too much research. And by that, I mean, if your researching is keeping you from writing the book, you have a problem. And I know for myself in particular, research is one of my favorite ways Mm -hmm. to procrastinate. I don't know why I love to write, but I still procrastinate. It's like exercising. Like I always feel really great when I get done exercising, but making myself start is hard and writing is the Mm -hmm. exact same way. So if researching is all you do, then you're never going to have a book and you should stop that. Yes, you can research too much. For myself and the research I do, it depends on what I'm writing about. The thing that people get wrong, especially with horses, there are little itty bitty details that stand out to Mm -hmm. me because I'm a horse person. And that's true of everybody. My husband, he's a paramedic and a firefighter. And, you know, they will do really stupid things on TV that nobody would ever Mm -hmm. do in a real situation. And for him, that just stands out because he's so familiar with it. And the reason why I think with horses it happens so much is because fantasies always have horses in them and a lot Mm -hmm. of writers aren't familiar with them. My advice to people that are writing about horses is that if you are not sure, don't get detailed. Skim the details. You get in trouble when you start to try to be specific if you don't know what you're talking about. I take that same advice and apply it to my own writing. If I'm talking about something that I know that I'm not that familiar with or something I've never done, but yet I don't have the time or the access to get the answer, just skim it. You pick and choose your Mm -hmm. details and the ones that are going to matter. You don't have to include them all, but then focus on the things you do know so that you're still creating that sense of believability that you're a writer that knows what you're talking about. Save those things for the things that you really do know what you're talking about or you've done the research on. I will sometimes skim the, the details on research in an early draft and then go back later once the book is sold or it's going into edits and ask an expert to review what I've written and say, hey, you know, this, this mm-hmm. works or this doesn't, you know, that kind of stuff. Now, luckily, there's not a lot of that I have to do because I write primarily science fiction right. and fantasy. Right. So there's not a lot of experts, per se. But I do have a book on submission right now that it's a supernatural suspense, but it involves a kid that gets arrested and has to go into a court hearing. There are details that I have to have for that that I don't know. And so I have a police officer on the line that I will consult when it's ready to get those details right Mm -hmm. when they actually go into print. I like what you're saying about don't get detailed. So in my fantasy, Given to the Sea, they're actually building a ship at one point. I don't know anything about ships. I live so landlocked. I know nothing about ships. And these people are building ships like from the ground up. And then they're sailing them and they're teaching themselves like how to sail. And I'm like, yeah, we're going to be so basic on this. And and that's what I did. And I've never had anybody say, yeah, you really screwed that up because I was really, really brief and really basic because it doesn't matter. You don't need to know about the jib. The reader doesn't care. Right myself as a writer, if there's something that I want to learn more about and I want to include it Mm -hmm. in a book, then that's like a win-win. But if it's something that I don't particularly care about, I'm not personally invested in like, let's say how ships are built. I'm not going to waste time researching a lot of that. 
It's not why I'm writing this book. How emotionally invested are you in this particular portion of the research? And if you're not, and you're honest with yourself, then skim those details. You don't need to work harder than you have to because it's already hard enough. To illustrate how little I know about ships, I was writing about one of the characters standing on the beach, like looking out at the ship out at anchor, admiring it, and the sails were full and bright and everything was so pretty. And my copy editor was like, well, it's not at anchor if the sails are full, because if the sails are full, then they're open and it's moving because it's catching wind. And I was like, yeah, yep, 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 absolutely. Right, right. Good for you for having copy editor to catch it. <laughs> so like, I feel like a lot of people that are writing about horses yeah. have copy editors that don't catch it. Mm-hmm. That moment in the first Hobbit movie, the trolls are picking up the horses. That scene is so utterly painful to watch because those horses are just sitting there. Legs are hanging loose. Their eyes are just like, you know, no horse in the history of the world would react no. that way to being picked up by a giant monster. They horses literally kill themselves to get away from a situation they fear. They will literally run off cliffs. They will flip over backwards. Panic is their big thing. And those horses are just sitting there and I'm like, oh sure. my God, this is so unbelievable. It took me right out of the movie. I need like five minutes to just yeah. reset. Farms. Farms and people that are supposedly farmers in movies. I'm just like, nope, 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 nope. I remember in Interstellar, they're talking about, right. we got to get the corn in. It's harvest time and the corn's green. I don't know if I trust <laughs> your astrophysics right. since you can't get corn right. So... <laughs> Well, and that's unfortunate, right? Because the astrophysics in that movie, to my understanding, are really pretty spot on. Like they did bring in big experts. They don't take the time to bring in the expert on the corn. Ask a farmer or even just someone that lives near a farm. Directors love corn because it's so cinematic and green corn is more cinematic. Corn is a huge hang up for me in movies. They never do it right. We're talking about marketing. When it comes to self-promotion, I know you do a lot of events because we see each other at events. So how do you decide what's going to be worth your time? And how do you balance between promotion and actually writing? This is where I'm going to be very humble. And I'm going to tell you that I just simply don't say no. I don't say no unless it's really far away. If it's going to take me more time to get there than the event is going to last, and then they're not paying for me to go. Unless I have an ulterior motive, like for example, if I have a good friend that's going and I want to spend some time with them, I'll say yes. If I don't have a friend that's going that I want to hang out with and catch up with, or if there's nothing particular I want to see in this area, I will start to say no. Now, the reason why I say yes to almost everything is because I'm a mid-lister. You know, I'm not a big name. I feel like if I don't say yes, they're not going to ask again. So I do tend to say yes. If they're going to pay, it's definitely a yes. There's any stipend involved for sure. Because I work the full-time job, if travel is involved, I will generally say yes because those are things I can write off on my taxes. That's a big deal. I have book money coming in plus a regular day job. So on paper, it looks like I make a lot more money than I do, at least according to the federal government. I will generally sometimes say yes, just because I want to expense that stuff and then have the experience and enjoy it. And I really love getting a chance to talk to readers, interact with librarians are my favorites. That is what I do. I say yes. Now, last year, I had a long break between the release of my last book and Onyx and Ivory, just because of how publishing works. So I did say no most of last year. People that were asking me to come are places I'd been before, and I was not promoting a new book. And I took that time instead to write a whole bunch of new books. A good answer should be you should do it based on how much you think you're going to sell. And, you know, my threshold is very low when it comes to that kind of stuff. <laughs> so, 
Mine too. I'm with you. I am still operating on the say yes to everything. I'm still flattered when people ask me. I do like to go places. Now, this particular past two months have been nuts for me. I have not been home very much. And I actually did get kind of close to burning out and was like, I should have said no to some of these things as I was traveling and as I was on the road. But every experience you learn something because your audience is different. So like one day I had two events. I had one in the morning with seventh graders. I had one in the afternoon with senior citizens. And then I was driving four events at a college the next day. I had three vastly different audiences with the same presentation. I had a different approach every time because I had a different audience. And so that was really kind of cool for me because you learn how to tweak your own stuff. And you learn what audiences are going to respond to which slides and what elements of your stories. I tell people I've probably done my presentation for Not A Drop to Drink over 500 times. And I doubt I've done it exactly the same even twice because I've been always adjusting for my audience. And so I'm always learning something every time I do an event. So I don't think it's ever lost. Like you said, it's like I can write off that mileage. I can write off my dinner. I can write off things. So that's always good. I am still saying yes to everything, unless I would have to fly and they're not paying for my flight. And also the the other thing about it too, is that you never know which event is going to be the one that leads to the next one. And so that is also some of the motivation there. Like I'll go and I'll meet this librarian and they enjoy it and they might pass my name on to somebody else. It's a very small industry. It feels big, but in reality, it's very small. Booksellers and librarians and the publishers and all, all those people. You're networking every time, whether it feels like it or not, even if it's the most podunk, little, tiny, whatever. You know, that's still somebody that's going to go to a writing conference, probably, or go to a librarian conference and then talk to someone else from the area and say, oh, did you know so-and-so lives in this place? You have to treat everything in publishing like it's a chance for a snowball. So I, I'm constantly pushing stuff, snow down the hill, hoping that it's going to be a big thing eventually. So tell us what's coming up next for you. I know you've got Onyx and Ivory coming out. That is the big one, right? It's out uh, May 15th. It is consuming my life at the moment, or has been for the past couple of weeks. I'm doing lots of marketing. A lot of fun, just a lot of work. And then after Onyx and Ivory will be the sequel. should be out May of 2019. I have numerous other projects in the pipeline, none of which I can talk about publicly yet. Lots going on, which is really great. That's awesome. And where can listeners find you online? My hub is www.mindyarnett.com. And I do spell my name with two E's and not a Y. So if you're a fan of Mindy McGinnis, keep that in mind. So I'm the other Mindy, M-I-N-D-E-E. It's like the other mother in Coraline. Although I'm not evil, I promise, at least not in general. <laughs> Through there, you can get my links too. I'm on Twitter, on Facebook, Instagram. Email is there. You can send me an email if you'd like. Um, very accessible. I love to talk to people and I respond pretty much to everything that comes in. Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. If you find the podcast or blog helpful, please consider making a donation by visiting gofundme.com and searching for Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire. Or visit the blog by going to writerwriterpantsonfire.blogspot.com. Click on the podcast tab and then the PayPal button. 
I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. Join me next week for another episode of Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where writers talk about things that never happened to people that don't exist. <laughs>